morning, everybody. Buckle up, buttercups, right? I mean, that's a lot of announcements. That was very appropriate by Emily there. Yeah, and, and by the way, last week we launched for the first time this number that you can text in to that will put you on a list so you can get the updates every week to your phone of the events that are coming up. I really recommend you do that. I don't have a smartphone, so and I don't even know where my phone is half the time, so I can't tell you what the number is, but it's at the connection table, and, and that'll help you keep everything straight, because there's so many things going on every week, opportunities for you guys to get involved. Uh, Serve City is hosting the first annual Love HB, May 7th. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come, uh, but if you want all that information, all those events brought to you where you're actually looking at it, because I know a lot of you aren't checking the e-bulletin emails, we can see the read rate of those, all right? So uh, receive these text messages. And, and of course, this is uh, Holy Week, Palm Sunday. We've got Good Friday on Friday. We've got Easter Sunday coming up. Uh, we are going to be rearranging the space a little bit, so you may want to come a little early so you're not really flustered and flummoxed when you walk in. You have some time to adapt, uh, but we have a really special service plan. It's going to be a great opportunity for you to invite in family neighbors, friends, let's just fill this space as I'm preaching on gospel truth. It's going to be the unvarnished gospel, just presenting it as clearly as possible because we believe there's so much power in it. So again, receive those invites. You yourself come. Come a little early. That'd be fantastic. But thank you for coming this morning because our attendance is a little lower, and this happens when it's cloudy outside. You would think that when it's sunny, that would impede attendance because people are going out on the beach. But I just think there's something about the atmosphere of a morning like this that says, nah, you don't really need a rush. And then you don't get, let that just be a sign to you. The next Sunday, you wake up, you feel that cloud cover, come to church, like the voice, to associate those two things. Like, you know, fight against those feelings. Let's get here. And I'm fighting against some of those feelings. I'm a little discouraged this morning. I'm back analog. I've got my notes in paper form because my iPad went missing. Um, that could be the result of my own, you know, failure. It could be under a cushion somewhere. It could be the kids. It could have been taken from my car. That'll be a developing story for a sermon that's coming near you. But usually it's my fault. Usually I don't know where my phone is, my wallet is, my iPad, my sunglasses. I'm on my 10th pair this year. Um, yeah, reading glasses. They bought me a box of 12 of them, I think, a year ago. I have none. I have none of them. They're gone. So hopefully that just builds some sympathy, relationship with those of you who are in the same boat. Let's open up, though, Matthew chapter 23. It was so kind of my wife, you know. She, she should be the one that holds my feet to the fire. You lost what? But instead this morning she goes, oh, I heard you had a hard morning. I say, that's the sweetest thing you could possibly say to me. I was expecting to be beat up by it. But here we go, Matthew chapter 23. And you know, by way of introduction, we started off in Matthew 23 last week. If you need a Bible, um, one of our ushers is going to give you a Bible, Margaret here. Uh, yeah, follow along with us. Uh, when we opened up in Matthew chapter 23 last week, Jesus began to go on the offensive, this indirect offensive against the religious leaders. And he did that indirectly by speaking, first of all, to the crowds that were gathered. And he identified how these religious leaders were very vain. Essentially, everything that they were doing in their positions of influence was to receive honor from people. It was to be seen. And then Jesus turned to his followers, his disciples, the church, us, the kingdom people. He said, look, it's going to be different with you guys. You're going to have a different culture. 
You're going to consider yourselves as one family under one Father in heaven. You are brothers and sisters. It's not going to be this pecking order and who's above who and who's being seen and who's being honored. You're going to serve one another humbly in love. I'm paraphrasing it. But it was really incisive and at times negative and challenging language that Jesus was using at the beginning of Matthew 23. And it was perfect because it was Child Dedication Sunday and everybody's extended family and relatives were here for a really challenging message. And uh, guess what? This week makes last week look like child's play with the sort of language that Jesus uses. It really is exceptional in the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. So again, buckle up, buttercups, because there is a lot that's going on here as Jesus now turns and speaks with all that incisive language directly to the religious leaders as he reveals what empty religion produces in a culture. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 13. The verses will also be on the screens. Woe to you, Jesus says, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside... You are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pause there this morning. I actually met someone after first service. It was their first Sunday. And that's the content of the message. And you just got to believe we're working through God's word. God is going to speak through his word. But you know, these are seven woes against these religious leaders. And you kind of feel that sense of like, whoa, right? I mean, a little play on words there, right? Whoa, whoa. What is going on here? I mean, there is a, there's a weight to this. And you think about it, it is exceptional in light of the entire gospel. You never really hear Jesus speak in this tone and tenor to even, you know, the average Joe, the average sinner. This is really directed, this sort of language at the religious leaders. And he doesn't just identify multiple things that are wrong with the culture that they are cultivating, but there's a lot of name calling. I mean, that's what stands out so much. He says, hypocrites. Sons of hell, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind Pharisee. We like that word blind this morning. Snakes, brood of vipers, essentially calls them murderers. All of which set the tone for this teaching. Jesus, he's ticked off. He's ticked off. Isn't that obvious? And I know there's things that tick all of us off, right? There are things that grind our gears that set us off. One thing that just drives me mad, makes my blood boil. We're in this pass-through street where we live in Huntington. So people make a quick, you know, shortcut to get to the freeway or, you know, back onto a main road. And, and so I'll just hear them around the corner and then 40 miles per hour down the road. And that just gets me, right? It just, ah, like, I'm not saying I'm out there, like, flailing my arms and yelling at people. Like, don't, don't picture me in the wrong light. But, you know, there's things that tick us off. There's things that get under our skin. And for God, we see what ticks them off. We see what gets under his skin. It's when someone claiming to represent him actually ends up obscuring him. That bothers him more than anything. When someone claiming to represent him actually, in the end, obscures him. Let's start into the details of what was so wrong about this culture. In verse 13, Jesus' first assertion is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law shut the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. So they're not willing to enter in, and they won't let anyone else enter in. Do you think they're knowingly doing this? I don't think they're knowingly doing this. I think that they believe that they're the doormen of God. You know, they're welcoming everybody into God's kingdom, right? But that's not the case. They're shutting the door in people's faces. We have a patio door in our house that uh, it takes the strength of 10 men to move it to open it. I mean, I've done everything I possibly can. I've changed out the wheels. I've changed out the track. I've put every form of grease all over this door. And uh, no matter what you do, it, it's more of a wall than it is a door. That's what I've discovered. And that's essentially the truth that Jesus is revealing here about these religious leaders. They are more of a wall in front of the kingdom of God than they are a door. Imagine that. The chief obstacles to get to God were the pastors. The chief obstacles, the wall that stood between people who were seeking to come to God, seeking to get in, the chief obstacle were the priests, the pastors, the spiritual leaders and shepherds. You know, that's not to say anything of their zeal and passion. Jesus says they have that in spades. They'll travel over land and sea to win a single convert. It almost is akin to the 
passion that Jesus has, right? To, to leave the 99 and find the one and bring them back, right? To God. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a form of passion. It's a form of zeal. There's conviction, right? There's a drive there. But understand that in its own right isn't really a compliment because none of that is a fruit of the Spirit. That's not anything that's commendable on its own. Zeal, passion, drive, enthusiasm like they have, it just indicates the amount of energy you have behind a cause. It indicates how much speed you're traveling at in the direction that you're driving. But whereas they believe that they're heaven-bound, their destination is hell. When they win that convert, they turn them into twice a child of hell than they are. And in verse 16, we get some insight into how things were getting so twisted through Jesus' commentary on oath-taking. Now, for context, Jesus has already outlawed oath-taking for us, his kingdom people. He says, I don't want you to make these promises and swear all these things. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, he basically just says, be people of integrity. Just be people of integrity. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just simply say that. Anything beyond that he calls evil. And I love this about Jesus' approach to righteousness, to the faith, because everywhere he goes, he seems to simplify God's desires. He, he seems to bring it back down to the heart of the matter so that everybody can understand it. I love that about Jesus. But we see the opposite here. These leaders of the religious institution had this robust and complex and, and calculated system of making O's. And they had all these stipulations about how they would have to go about it, and they could call each other out on, oh, that oath isn't valid before God because, you know, you made that oath on the temple and not the gold within the temple, and you made that oath on the, on the, on the altar, not the sacrifice that sits on the altar. And Jesus is standing there like, what? Who made all these rules? This is insane. I mean, that's, that's sort of the sentiment that Jesus is conveying here. It doesn't even make sense. Like, even if I'm in the step into your world and all the rules that you have about oath-taking, you totally miss the priority on how you would even go about this nonsensical practice. That's why he says these men are blind guides. Blind guides. You know, would you ever go on a journey and ask a blind person to be your guide on that physical journey? You know, let, let's say you pay all the money, you're going to hike Mount Everest, Right? It takes a little bit of training, but it takes a lot of money. Because, I mean, you can basically pay, and they'll find a Sherpa to drag you up the mountain, right? Attach the oxygen to you. But imagine you land there, and you meet your Sherpa, and he's blind. Are you going up the mountain with that person? Not a chance am I following this individual. So if we carry this, like, illustration into life, you know, what is the Mount Everest of life? Well, life is the Mount Everest of life, because life is filled with all these precarious moments and it's a winding journey and there's a lot of unknown and there's a lot of potential disaster and here these individuals are going around. We'll be your guide. We'll lead you in the ways of God. You just have to follow us. We'll teach you the proper way to do everything through the proper methods, but they don't have a clue what's actually important in God's eyes. That's what happens when the heart of the matter is divorced from one's actions you can end up in these meaningless mechanics like they are and splitting hairs over words. Becomes totally just taken for granted in a culture like that in the church that, oh no, you know, we're having this argument over you can't change the color of the carpet in the sanctuary or, 
You know, did you hear the way that that prayer was phrased? Or did you see how they changed the order of service in the liturgy today? Did you see that he read the scriptures from a printout instead of a Bible? You know, did he say enough about Palm Sunday today? You know, like you can get into that world, right? When you're just splitting hairs over the smallest of details because the heart has been divorced from the actions. There was a really sad story in the news, and this is what gets, you know, national attention, of course. It's regarding a Catholic priest who had 25 plus years of baptisms invalidated from 1995 to 2021 because he used one wrong word when they were performing the baptisms. He used the word we instead of I. We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit instead of the proper one in the Catholic mind. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he got the message that 25 years plus of his ministry, all the baptisms will need to be redone. They're invalid. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to this in the Catholic mind. Because this is Jesus who's performing the baptism through the priest. I indicates it's Jesus. So that, that's, that's the frame of mind that they're coming into this with. But, you know, ultimately when it plays out, this has effects on marriage. This has effects on salvation because of their understanding. All because of one word. And, you know, I'm not trying to put on blast the Catholic Faith and, and denomination, look, they carried the torch of Christianity for hundreds of years so you and I could be preaching the gospel today. So there's that. But I'm telling you, like, this is what happens when the heart of the matter, did anyone think, like, no one noticed for 25 years? Like, how did it just get reported? Well, obviously it wasn't that big of a deal because no one even knew about it. You know, what about the heart of the priest? He didn't mean to do that. His whole ministry for the rest of his life now is trying to make amends and rebaptize all these folks that he didn't baptize. Who knows about the people that have died? You know, what about the heart of the people? They're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But wait a minute. We messed up a single word. But this is what happens in any culture when you go through everything with a fine-tooth comb, we can find something to dis disagree about. We can squeeze the argument until the logic is inverted. Up is down, and what's irrational becomes rational. Just like this oath-making. It doesn't make any sense at all, but it makes perfect sense to them. The key is when you've gone there, you're gone. You're off God's reservation at that point. A problem is further evidenced and where they give their priority in their tithes and offerings. Jesus notes in verse 23 how they're very careful to give the first fruits of their crops down to the spices and herbs. Okay, all the way down to the spices and herbs. This is like budgeting down to the pennies when you've got millions of dollars, right? I mean, that, that's what's being included here. This is, the, this is the HEPA air filter of spirituality right here. And yes, I've done some dust mitigation in my life. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting the smallest particulates out of the year that might be, you know, bad, right? They're meticulous is the point, but they're meticulous about all the wrong things, about giving spices and not about the weightier themes of the Bible from beginning to end, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, do you think that they'd admit that? Do you think they'd say, yeah, we don't care about justice? No, there was a way they went about justice. They would definitely take the average Joe to court. You know, they would definitely punish people if they did things wrong. But they had a different form of justice where they existed at the top of culture, right? They were complicit with systemic injustices, with tipping the scales, with bending the rules without breaking them. 
It's the same thing you see with politicians today and corporate CEOs. You know, they have the tax shelters. They have the knowledge. They have the, the lawyers. They have the funds to be able to do things that aren't necessarily illegal, right? But they break the spirit of the laws that everyone else is held to. And that proves that they don't really care about justice. They obviously don't care about mercy. They have no heart for these folks that Jesus is ministering to, the tax collectors and prostitutes that Jesus says, they're actually changing their hearts. They're actually humbled. And so they're going on ahead of you into the kingdom of God. No, they couldn't care less about those folks. There's no faithfulness to God that's driving them. We discovered last week it's loyalty only to their own reputation. So yeah, nothing wrong with getting the whole spices thing right. All right, give them a few attaboys. Good job with the mint and the dill and the cumin. Yeah, great job, but what good is it to strain out a gnat of incorrect behavior if you swallow a camel of soul corruption? It's the same as these ridiculous pictures of cleaning the outside of a dish instead of the inside or whitewashing a tomb to cover its structural issues. And I'm the king of this in restoration projects. I love taking something old and making it look better. You know, I, I have an addiction, honestly, to like taking old things and trying to dress them up and make them look new. I always get into projects I shouldn't. And one of the most beautiful inventions in the world is paint. You know, a good coat of paint, wow. It can cover a lot of blemishes. Right, but the blemishes remain underneath the surface. This is the Orange County way. Another coat of paint. You know, another new car. Another house remodel. Another diet. Another fitness plan. Like, all the stuff on the outside right to try to address the things that are going on on the inside. For them, it was that they had this religion down to a T. They had everything right from their confessions to their practices. But the real point of what Jesus is saying is you unwrap it all, and they're just awful people. <laughs> that's an oversimplification, but that's a lot of the message here is like they have the religion down. Anyone would look at them and say, wow, spiritual person right there, but you unwrap the layers and they're just not good people. They're just awful. You know, they'd never touch anything unclean or impure according to their rules, but it's like they're just wearing these white clothes on the outside, but if you could see their soul, their soul is stained. Their soul is filthy. Jesus says, focus on the inside, focus on the heart. But if you continue to get the inside wrong, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. It won't be worth a dime to God. He won't care. But again, verse 30, as in the case of dealing with the checkered past of their ancestors, they always have the right thing to say. Oh, we would never have done what our ancestors did, killing the prophets. And so they decorate the tombs of those righteous that were persecuted. But Jesus knows they haven't cut ties. They're going forward in the same spirit as their ancestors, and they're going to harass and beat and flog and crucify the prophets and wise teachers that Jesus will end up sending to them. So he says, how can you escape being condemned to hell? No, you are going to face the judgment for all the righteous blood that has been spilled throughout all time. Take a break for a moment and breathe. Because that's a lot. That's a lot. Not only did I read it, but then I unwrapped it for us this morning. But you have to realize, right, that Jesus never wanted any of this. He never wanted any of us. What did he want? 
He wanted that nurturing image, that image of protection, the care of that picture of a hen gathering its chicks to itself. So we find that even in God, anger is a secondary emotion. Underneath the passion of what Jesus is saying is his pain that they won't receive him as their true Lord, that they refuse to experience life. But what could be done? The Pharisees and teachers of the law had a lot of opportunities to encounter Jesus, and they just rejected him, rejected him, rejected him. And there's all that history in Jerusalem of crucifying all the people that God had sent to them to lead them back to himself. So what could be done? How can they experience anything but hell? But the more important, relevant question for us this morning is, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid this? So I've got seven ways to match the seven woes. It's too many ways. I got to like four. I should have stopped. But I went to seven. And I'm just believing for all those of you who are not note takers, meaning 98% of you, that the Lord is just going to leave you with the one or two that are for you. Seven ways that we won't go the way of the woe. Yes, that's right. Austin Akers isn't the only one who can throw down some bars. You can do a little spoken word. Seven ways. We won't go that way. Number one, we must admit our blindness so that we can see. Remember, they were the greatest obstacle for themselves and others to experience the kingdom of God. They weren't a door to the kingdom. They were a wall. Did they know it? No. They were going over land and sea to win that single convert. Did they know that they were turning him into a child of hell? No. And there's a reason for that, blindness. How many times does Jesus use that word? This is a major theme in this passage. Blind Pharisee, blind guide, blind men. There's a blindness there. What's the solution for our own blindness? How do we know what we don't know about ourselves? Geez, that's tough. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 9, he says, you're blind because you think you can see. If you could admit that you're blind, your guilt would no longer be on you. What a beautiful opportunity for us to experience humility, to experience grace, to go in admitting our blindness saying there are times when I have been a wall to the kingdom of God, and I didn't mean to be. I was confused. I was lost, right? But I want to be a door. Lord, help me see what I don't see. I'm blind. I need your grace. And that's when we start to begin to see. God wants us to be inclined to admit our blindness. Don't you know that when he says, look, You're going to go take a speck out of your brother's eye or your sister's eye. Don't you know you have a log in your own eye? The assumption on our part should be blindness. Why are you taking it out of speck if you've got a log in your eye? Well, you can't see it, right? So the first way that we can avoid this state, this sort of culture, is to admit our blindness so that we can begin to see. Number two, we need to constantly evaluate our convictions to find if they lead to Jesus. Who cares about zeal and passion and immovable certainty if we're all headed in the wrong direction? Right? They were driven. They were certain. They were the experts. They had the way, and they were headed toward hell really, really fast. 
Okay, there's nothing about passion and zeal that is godly in its own right. We have to ask, does this conviction that I have, does this certainty I have about something, this passion I have for something, does it not just lead to what I think is right, but does it produce the person of Jesus? Is it accompanied with the fruit of the Spirit? Because you may get what you think is right done in that conviction and passion, but if it doesn't also produce Christ's likeness in you, then it isn't heaven-bound. It's headed another direction. Evaluate our convictions to find that they lead to Jesus. Three, we must avoid making meaning out of the meaningless. They've just taken for granted that a lot of their culture and all their practices and logic and understanding behind oath-taking you know, were just empty. They're just void. It was just nonsense. It was just, it was noise. You know, they didn't ever stop to think like, hey, guys, we, we've given this whole oath-taking thing a lot of thought. Maybe we've thought about it too much. Maybe we've just taken this a little too far. You know, we have to be careful of the same thing. I think you've got all this Christian history, hundreds of years. You can find all kinds of conversations that ended in division, that ended in splits, that ended in this and that. And it's like, did anyone just stop and ask, hey, have we thought about this a little bit too much? Like, in religiosity, you can beat a dead horse. You can do that. It gets done a lot. And there's warnings against it. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies. And the world is just jam-packed with controversies. Right? There's a controversy every single week. Because it gets people's attention, it gets people involved, and it ultimately makes money, right? So you're going to avoid those foolish controversies and genealogies. You could link that to any Bible codes. I mean, they're looking for hidden secrets in these genealogies. Arguments and quarrels about the law. Avoid all this because they're unprofitable and useless. It's not going to bring about anything. So we've got to ask ourselves, do I tend to make a whole lot of meaning out of the meaningless? One way to avoid all that, number four, give weight to what's weighty. Give weight to what's weighty. How do you know what's weighty? Well, did God give weight to it? Is it spoken of once in the Scriptures, twice in the Scriptures, 20 times in the Scriptures, 40 times in the Scriptures? I mean, do you find that a lot of your energy is driven toward that obscure passage in Genesis or, you know, that fringe topic on the edge of Revelation or the things that are spoken of countless times beginning to end in the Bible, among them justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Keep first things first. Make the main things the main things. Another way of saying it, prioritize the heart, number five. That's where the weight is going to come into play. Because just like them, you can be right. You can be absolutely right about everything you think and everything you do, but if your heart is wrong, you're wrong. You're wrong. I mean, you might have the 10 out of 10 answer key to the kingdom of heaven, you know, and you've got all that certainty, right? But if your heart is in the wrong place, then you're in the wrong. Get the heart right, and Jesus says all is going to fall into place. Number six, we must cut out cultural loyalties that stand above Christ. You know, these guys held on to their traditional ties to their past, and it would haunt them because they had to run everything through the filter of what they used to do. So when God came and spoke to them, they're filtering Jesus' words through their tradition instead of letting Jesus filter their tradition with his words. And so I'd say that for Christianity, Christian, I love Christian history. But I'm in Christ before I'm a Christian. 
And what I mean by that is like, there's a lot of things that go on in Christianity that aren't of Christ, right? So I don't want to just assume it. I got to filter it through Jesus. So he leaves me with what I'm supposed to keep. I love this country. I would consider myself patriotic, but I don't think that everything that's American is of Christ. I'm in Christ first, and he's going to filter my experience of America. I've got to let him filter every bit of my tradition and cultural heritage and lead me with what is of him, because nothing can stand above him. And number seven, we must always listen as Jesus preaches to us. It's the most simple, but it's the most important. The second we stop receiving Jesus' words for us is the second that we're going to start falling into self-deception and hypocrisy. The second, oh, this message is for that denomination. This message is for that person in my life. No, no, no. The same way they didn't want to hear from God, they pushed away the prophets, they're going to murder him. We murder Christ in our heart when we say, I don't want to listen to you anymore. You know, they were just trying to silence him. We can do the same thing. We can just try to silence him. I don't get up here and preach this sermon and go, well, this is going to be a good one for that person and that person and that person. I think, man, I have a lot. I have a lot to consider in my own life as I hear the words of Christ. I want to be gathered to Jesus like that final picture. I don't want to be a wall for others. I want to be a door to the kingdom. I don't want to be a fraud or swallow a camel of soul corruption. And sometimes that means receiving Jesus' correction, but I want the ears that are always open to listen, to be changed. So as we consider these ways that we can avoid the sad state of that religious culture, let's go before the Lord in prayer that he would make these principles so foundational in our own hearts, in our own lives. Let's go before him in humility. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you First of all, for your grace that is so available to us because of the cross. I thank you that we don't have to posture like we can see in our own right. We have everything accurate and perfectly figured out. Lord, you actually encourage, you want us to admit our blindness. There's so much we can't see about ourselves. There's so much we don't know about even you and how you work in this world. There's so much we're still grasping for in our hearts by the power of your spirit. So Lord, we come before you and we just admit our blindness so that we can begin to see. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. Where, Lord, we've been that wall for others instead of that open door into your kingdom. Where we've made meaning out of the meaningless where we haven't given weight to what you've given weight to. Jesus, your heart here tells us what really ticks you off, what really upsets you, when someone who represents you actually obscures you. And Lord, we're all called to be representatives as your people. So Lord, help us to feel the same way. Help our hearts to align with you where what bothers you begins to bother us the most. Lord, reveal to us too. Correct us. 
Have we been that wall? Have we had a lot of passion and zeal, but it's been pointed in the wrong directions? It hasn't produced you. It's produced something else. Lord, have we been getting lost in details that if you were to just look at it with us, you'd say, are you nuts? That's what you care about? Lord, help us to give weight to your justice, your mercy, faithfulness, to prioritize the heart. Lord, we don't want to have everything right on the surface, just like our culture is so about the surface. What image are you presenting? Lord, we want to see the inside of the dish by the power of your spirit, clean, clean, cleansed. Lord, we know that if that's right, everything else is going to fall into place. So, Lord, we're not going to let anyone stand above you. We are the ones listening to your words. We're the ones receiving your message. It was for them, Lord, and it's for us in a different way as your children. But, Lord, we receive it. Because we want to hear the word that comes from you, God. Not just the word that we want to hear. just invite you to take a few moments. One thing the Lord really left me with as I was preparing something that was for me in this is a matter of the heart. I could have it all right. I could do everything correct. But if my heart isn't right, it's not right. And in that same spirit, would you just lay your heart before the Lord, lay your life before the Lord this morning in light of everything that he's spoken to us through his word.